Well, we are going to take just a moment and read from our scripture here this morning. And uh, we've been, we just started a series in Nehemiah. But Freddie, why don't you come read to us? Nehemiah chapter 2, pay attention. The story here in Nehemiah is carrying on. And it's a wonderful, wonderful truth here. So, to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sambalad, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night, by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain, and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the brook, and viewed the wall and turned back, and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned. And to the rulers, and the rulers knew not whether I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then I said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth in waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we, that we be no more our reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, and also the king's word that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sambalad the Horonite, and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn, and despised us, and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will you rebel against the king? Then answered I them, and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, no right, no memorial in Jerusalem. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, when you came in this morning, you might have noticed you're sitting on different chairs than you're used to, and we're keeping anybody from getting assigned seats. Somebody told me, you've taken my seat away entirely. I said, well, we still want you. We just move things around a little bit. And uh, we did that, try to make a little more space, and I felt like we had a little more space this morning, so that was a good thing. I just wanted to give you a quick update on what the Lord has done in providing for our church and being able to take care of some of the projects around here. Uh, you've, uh, many of you gave back in June towards uh, some updates around our facility here. And of course, we've been working in the nursery and really updated that and uh, thankful for that. We've got the new patio poured. Tomorrow they're coming out to connect the two roofs out there of the two awnings. So that'll be a little extra shade and, and a nice place out there. And uh, we moved some things around in here this morning. This didn't cost us anything, just a little bit of sweat and a little bit of time. But uh, we're making some space and kind of laying some things out so that uh, when we are able to purchase some new seating for this room, we can kind of know how things are going to lay out and how it's going to work. Currently, uh, we have been able to 
take in uh, almost all of the pledges so far that have been pledged. I'm thankful for that. And uh, we've just spent what has come in. So we've not spent any more than what's come in, but we've spent basically everything that's come in. And so this is where we're at, and this is what we finished up the project so far. And uh, so as the Lord continues to provide, we'll be able to keep moving forward with some of these things. But I just wanted to thank you for your giving and uh, thank you for your faithfulness to be able to take care of some of the physical needs around here that hopefully we can use to meet spiritual needs of people as uh, there's a place for them and as there's a place to be able to minister to children and to mothers better over here in the nursery and as uh, we try to improve some things on our entrances and exits and, and uh, we have some more plans. We'd like to complete the work in here to be able to uh, add some lobby space in the back and then add uh, some new doors so that they aren't banging and crashing and you know stuck all the time and and maybe they'd even close themselves we live in such a uh, an affluent society if a door doesn't close itself we're just uh, we're, we wonder what's wrong with that door and so uh, we'll we'll try to make sure that that's taken care of and all those things but we're just do that as the Lord provides but uh, we're so thankful for how He has provided already, and thank you for your faithfulness in giving that way. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning. I am really excited to be back in the book of Nehemiah. We started out now, it's been several weeks ago, because we had a couple of different weeks off here in the book. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah hears of this great problem that is going on back in his homeland. He is working as the cupbearer for the king in Persia, and that was a very important job. He had the responsibility to serve the king all of his food and all of his drink. And one of the things he would do was to make sure it wasn't poison. So he was required to be a man of great trust. That the king put a lot of trust in him before he would just let anybody serve his meal to him. Now it's interesting because Nehemiah was not a Persian. He was a Jew living in Persia, because if you go back in the Jewish history, before this time, there had been a, a, an army that had come in and taken captive many of the Jewish people and taken them back to Babylon. Remember Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel and all those guys? Well, later on now, we have the king of Persia, and he is in charge, this king Artaxerxes, and he has a Jewish man, Nehemiah, working for him. Kind of sounds similar to Mordecai, who was working uh, for the king when Esther was there. That was also in Persia. And so Nehemiah has this position of great importance, but he hears from his homeland that the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, the walls are broken down, the gates are burned with fire, and this makes him very sad because his city has no protection and he knows his people have no hope. And so he begins to pray, and we looked at his prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1, and he has this wonderful prayer that God would provide, that God would protect him, that God would give him the ability to go and do something about the problem. And then he finishes chapter 1 saying, and I was the king's cupbearer, which I really believe was Nehemiah's statement of, I am in a position that God has allowed me to be in so that perhaps I could speak to the king about this problem. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 2. Only chapter 2 doesn't happen the next day. Chapter 2 happens some four months after chapter 1. 
And so Nehemiah, now he's been praying, he's been planning, he's been preparing what he would do when given the opportunity. And all of a sudden, one day, God provides the opportunity. And that's how God works. Often we expect God to work on our timetable when we expect it to happen, but God's ways are not our ways. And His time is always perfect. Somebody said it this way, God is never early, He is always right on time. But I can tell you for certain, He's never late either. God always does things right on time, right when it needs to be done. And so God provides an opportunity for Nehemiah to speak to the king. And as he speaks to the king and he shares the problem, the king, his heart is moved and he says, Nehemiah, what do you need to fix this problem? Nehemiah says, here's the people I need. Here's the materials that I'm going to need. He even knew how much time he was going to need or how much time he thought he was going to need. And the king said, all right, here you go. You can have what you need. And we finished off the first half of chapter 2 looking at Nehemiah's final statement as he thanks God and gives God the glory and the praise for putting everything together. How often is it, though, where sometimes we put together a plan, we organize something well, and we can fall into the trap of trying to take credit for it ourselves, can't we? I'm thankful, and that's why we took some time to give glory to the Lord this morning for what He did this past week in Vacation Bible School. Because it wasn't all our work that made it a success. It was God who made it a success. God even gives us the ability to work. The ability to have the strength to be able to perform what needs to be done. The minds to be able to plan. It all comes from God. But for God to orchestrate it the way He did, to put the people where He wanted them to be at just the right time and just the right place, and to put it all together for His glory and for our good, that's all a work of God. But here in Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 9 this morning and, Lord willing, get through the end of the chapter here. I've titled this message this morning, Trust and Obey. We talk a lot about faith, and we should, because the Bible speaks about how important it is to have faith. The Bible tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But the Bible also tells us in the book of James that faith without works is dead being alone. In other words, you can't just say you believe something. If you really believe it, you'll do something as well. And so in this second half of Nehemiah 2, we see Nehemiah's faith being evidenced by his obedience. So let's look at verse 9. It says, Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. See, the king said, here you go, here's the letter, here's your letter of introduction. He's given him all he needs. What does Nehemiah do? He goes. He obeys. God has provided the way for him to go. Nehemiah goes. He says, now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. That When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. We'll talk about more, more about those men in just a minute. Verse 11, So I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. And I rose in the night, and I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. 
He's acknowledging God. God has put it in his heart. He said, neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well and to the dung port and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. So what he had heard, he saw to be true. He had heard the walls were broken down, the gates were burned with fire. Nehemiah goes out to survey it for himself and he finds out that's exactly the way that it was. Verse 14, Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. In other words, the walls were so broken down, the stones were everywhere, that even his horse or his mule that he was riding on couldn't find a way to get through. Then he says, Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. In this passage of Scripture, and then in the rest, the other half of the chapter, or the other half of this passage that we'll get to in a few minutes, we're going to see several principles of what it looks like to trust and obey. To believe in God and then do something based on what you believe about Him to be true. We see very simply, first of all this morning, when Nehemiah was provided with the way to do what God had told him he was going to do or what he had prayed and asked God for him to be able to do, when God made a way, Nehemiah went. And I would say that's so important for us when it comes to trust and obey. When God makes a way, go. Don't wait. Go. God is always advancing. God is always moving forward. God is always fighting the battles out in front of us and wanting us to come along with Him to accomplish what He is going to accomplish. God provides the motivation to do what needs to be done. God had put Nehemiah in the right place. God had put him with the king. God had provided everything he needed. God provides the motivation. He provides the means. And God provides the method. He had helped Nehemiah to put together the plan on what needed to be done. And so when the king said, here you go, here's the letters that you need, Nehemiah didn't wait around. Nehemiah didn't say, well, let me go pray about that now. Nehemiah had already been praying. Now it was time for action. It was time for obedience. It was time for him to go forward. When we obey God, God brings blessing in our life. We often miss out on experiencing the work of God in us because we fail to obey His Word. It's one thing you say to say you believe God's Word. It's another thing entirely then to say, I believe it, so therefore I'm going to obey it. I'm going to do something about it. And I would say that is a fundamental issue among many people who profess to be Christians. They look at their life, they look at the things around them, and they don't feel like they're experiencing God's work. I've been in churches where they say, hey, it doesn't seem like God is doing anything anymore. Is God dead? Well, we say, no, He's not. Well, why are churches struggling? Why are 
people in need? Why are Christians fighting amongst themselves? It's one thing to say, I believe something to be true. It's another thing then to say, I'm going to obey what is true and go to action. See, we could sit around and study God's Word all day. And the Bible even tells us this. It would do us no good if all we did was just learn what it says. We then have to act upon that truth and apply it to our lives. God's Word is very clear about so many things. That He's called us to holiness. That He's called us to righteousness. He's called us to be conformed to the image of His dear Son, of Jesus Christ. I would ask you, how are you doing in obeying those things? We know what the Bible says, or if we don't, we should, because we have the Bible. We are to be studying it, so we ought to be then living it. When God makes a way, you go. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to wonder if this is what we're supposed to do. When God clearly lays out in His Word what He wants you to do, you do it. God's very clear. He says, husbands, love your wives. You don't have to wonder, well, should I love her today? She's not very lovely today. No. Love her. It's not based on what she's done for you lately. It's based on what God has done for you. Bible says, forgive. Say, well, they don't deserve my forgiveness. That's okay. You don't deserve forgiveness either, right? We don't forgive because we deserve it or because they deserve it. We forgive because God, for Christ Jesus' sake, hath forgiven us. We know what the truth is, or if we don't, we should. And when we know the truth, we need to live the truth. We need to obey what God says. We could go on and on and just stay there today. But I really want us to get the full idea of what's going on in this story. And I hope that you'll take some of the things, you'll write these down and you'll go home and think about it and say, what has God told me to do that I'm not doing? And I think it'd be good for all of us to make a little list of our, for ourselves. And maybe for some of us, the list would be little. Some of us, it might be longer than we want to admit. But when God tells us to do something and we're not doing it, that's disobedience. That's not faith. Faith produces obedience. So we see that he went. But notice, as he's going, what's the first thing we see that happens? Opposition. Verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. What a sad verse. It grieved them exceedingly. It made them really upset that somebody was concerned about the welfare of somebody else. You think, how strange. And yet, how often do we do that? You see, when someone else tries to do a work that might seem to take away from our own glory or our own position, it kind of frustrates us. Hey, I was supposed to be there. That, that was my position. That was my seat. That was where people recognized me. Why have you done that to me? That, that happens in churches too, doesn't it? Well, I always... I, I, I knew some people one time, they told me, they left the church because they didn't get to sing enough solos in church. I said, that's sad. Well, I didn't get my position. 
No, it wasn't Abe. Don't worry. We know it wasn't Abe. <laughs> but somebody would leave a church over something like that. Why? Well, because they didn't have their position anymore. People weren't looking at them and telling them what a great singer they were. How sad. Folks, it's not about me being a great singer or a great preacher or great anything. It's I serve a great God and I want to tell you about it. I was speaking yesterday to a group of men about unity in the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible tells us when there's unity in the Spirit, it, it'll be evidenced by a lowliness of mind. That means I'm humble. When I'm walking around proud and stuck up and wanting to exert my authority or my power over other people, I'm not a person who's being led by the Spirit. A Spirit-led person, an obedient person who's trusting and obeying, is a humble person. Not only are they a humble person, they're a patient person. Because you can't be patient when you're proud. It just doesn't work. Nehemiah, though, he faces this opposition. Two men are mentioned here. Sanballat did some research on him. Seems as if he was the governor of Samaria at this time. Samaria was the former capital of the northern ten tribes. He had been placed in this position as governor, and so now someone moving in and trying to rebuild Jerusalem, this caused him some problems because he was concerned that now they might take over some of the land and they might use some of the water resources and they might develop and grow and that's going to be bad for us. Sanballat was a man focused on his own area, on his own things, on what he wanted to have accomplished. And so he was opposed to Nehemiah coming in and doing what he did. But there's a second man mentioned here, and this man's very interesting to me. His name's Tobiah. He's referred to as Tobiah the servant. Did you know Tobiah is a Jewish name? So here's a man with a Jewish name, and back in that time you wouldn't have a Jewish name unless you were from a Jewish family. He's, got a, he's a Jewish man, and he's opposing the work that's going on in Jerusalem? What's wrong with this guy? Well, I can't be 100% certain, but there is a very interesting parallel back in the book of Ezra. Because Ezra and Nehemiah kind of go hand in hand, these two books. And they both were, Ezra and Nehemiah were both men doing work in Jerusalem. But there was also another man mentioned in the book of Ezra, and his name was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel had led a group of people back from the foreign land from Persia to start doing some rebuilding efforts. This was before the time of Nehemiah. But Zerubbabel wanted to make sure that all the people that he brought back were people that were, being, that were faithful Jewish people, that were truly part of the family, so to speak. Because it was very important for the Jewish people to keep their bloodline pure. Why was that important? Well, because God had made some very special promises to their bloodline. So they were doing what they should have been doing. And so Zerubbabel wanted all of the people that came back with him to be able to prove their Jewish lineage, to be able to prove that they were actually supposed to be there. 
But it says in Ezra that the family of Tobiah was excluded from the group because they could not trace their lineage. They couldn't prove their ancestry. Now follow me because I know this is, uh, these are a few logical steps I'm taking here. But it would seem to me that the family of Tobiah, who I think this man Tobiah was part of, had not kept track of their family tree. You say, why is that important? Well, for the Jewish family, it was very important that they kept track of their family tree so they could trace their lineage back to Abraham because they wanted to make sure they were included in the promises given to Abraham. But for whatever reason, the family of Tobiah did not value this connection like they should. They didn't keep track of it like they should. And so when it came time for them to be able to prove that they were part of this family... They couldn't prove it. And so Zerubbabel put them out of the group. And so it seems as if this man, Tobiah, this Jewish man, he's holding some kind of bitterness in his heart. These Jewish people coming back, well, they put me out. Well, they put him out for a very important reason. Because what should have been important to him keeping track of his family tree, keeping track and making sure he was part of God's chosen people. That should have been important to his family. They didn't bother to keep track of that. And so therefore they'd been put out. So I would say this man, Tobiah, is, is like a, a man who's bitter because of some past offense that he or his family member committed. And he didn't like it that other people had to deal with their sin. He didn't like it when other people brought some judgment upon him that was righteous and God had allowed for that. And so now he's trying to fight back against God's people. Sometimes that's where the opposition comes from, doesn't it? Sometimes it comes from just worldly people like probably Sanballat was who were out for their own goodness and out for their own uh, ability. Sometimes it comes from people like Tobiah, people who really probably should be part of the group but aren't because of some past thing that they did wrong. And so now they want to make sure that nobody else gets to experience what they don't get to experience because of the bad choice that they made. I found that very interesting to me because here's this man, Tobiah, who came from a family that hadn't walked faithfully with God and now he's bitter because he has faced God's judgment. And because he's bitter, he's trying to bring to bear on the nation of Israel some opposition and keep them from being able to rebuild in Jerusalem. You see, when God provides a way, you must obey, you must go. But when you go, you will often face opposition. We'll see that even more if you go down to verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 19. It says, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite and, here's a third man, Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that you do? Will ye rebel against the king? We're going to see these guys mentioned several more times in the book of Nehemiah. But I want you to understand, when you obey God, don't be surprised when opposition comes. People think, well, I'm trying to do right. It should all be easy now. I'm sorry, it won't be. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's why Ephesians chapter 6 tells us we are to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Realize opposition will come. You say, I'm trusting, I'm obeying, and you will be opposed. So what should we do? Well, I think it's interesting. You go back to verse number 12. I'm sorry, verse 11. It says, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened during these three days, but it seems as if he's made this long journey and he gets there and he spends three days probably resting, recouping from his trip. Knowing Nehemiah, he was probably praying. You see, Nehemiah is taking a big step of faith here. He's obeying God and doing something very difficult. When you go forward for God, you're going to need some rest along the way. You're going to need to have time to pray. Notice also as he's obeying God, he's alone at first. When you trust and obey, sometimes it will mean that you're going to be lonely. You say he was lonely, yeah. It said here that in verse 12, I rose in the night, I and some few men with me. He only had a few people with him. Neither told I any man what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. He's going by himself. He's got just a couple other guys with him. Verse 16, the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. Neither I yet told it to the Jews, the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Now, Nehemiah is lonely here, and I would say it's by his choice, right? He, he could have gone and told everybody what he's going to do. I understand that. When you obey God, though, not everybody else is going to understand what you're doing or why you're going to do it. And I think what we see here is Nehemiah taking his time alone. He realized he didn't need all of these guys yet. Right now, all he needed was his relationship with God. All he needed was his walk with Him. All he needed was the time to be able to put things together so that then when he was ready, he could share with the other people what God was leading him to do. Realize when you begin to obey, not everybody else is going to understand what you're doing initially. Not everybody else is going to want to come with you right away. Not everyone is going to want to work with you and get involved in what you're doing. I know when God speaks to me about things and I get excited about it, I get excited when other people want to do it. But I've also learned when you obey God, be willing to work alone for a while before God puts other people around you to work with you. We see that actually happening over and over and over again in Scripture. People who walked by faith and obeyed God and did what God wanted them to do often had to forsake their family first or forsake their friends and leave them. It doesn't mean that they all lost their family forever, but in many cases they had to take a step towards God, which meant them taking a step away from their friends and family and their culture even sometimes. Think of Ruth. She left her family back home to go with a widow woman. Why would she do that? Because she was going towards God. 
And did God give her a family? Yes. Did God give her a people? Yes. Did God provide for all of her needs? Yes. But she had to take that step away from her family first. Think of what happened when, when Daniel, he's over in Persia. There were other Jewish people there. But Daniel said, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to pray three times a day. He got put in the lion's den for it. Think of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not going to bow the knee to the golden idol. So they all stood while thousands of people bowed. They took a step of obedience towards God, and it was lonely at first. But don't be so afraid of human loneliness that you miss out on the wonderful presence of God who is with you even when no one else seems to be with you. I want to encourage the mother here this morning. When you feel alone because you're at home or you're dealing with things with your children and you're working and it's tiring and it's hard work and your kids don't appreciate it. Maybe your husband doesn't even appreciate it as much as you want him to, even if he's trying. Stay faithful. God's put you there for a wonderful purpose and He is using you. Don't be afraid of the loneliness that sometimes comes when you're obeying God. To the Father, I want to encourage you as a man, as you lead your home, as you love your wife, no, you may not have all the other friends of all the other men that you work with and all the other people around you, but be encouraged when you obey God, you walk with Him, you can have His presence. Everybody else may not be with you. They may not all agree with you. They may not all like what you're doing. You might even be facing some opposition, but be faithful, trust, and obey. Often people who are absolutely unwilling to go it alone are people who are not willing to trust and obey. Because God says that He works through the weak things of this world. God says it's not many mighty are chosen. God works through the simple, small, weak, lonely things. And he accomplishes great works. And we know the great work's coming. We know what's going to happen. We know God's going to bring all kinds of people around him to help. It's going to happen. But I think we see in the very beginning stages of Nehemiah's walk of trust and obedience, we see God at work. I think one of the reasons was he was willing to take a step of faith, even if it meant not everybody was with him yet. But we see then in the next part of the chapter here, verses 17 through 20, we see things really start to move forward. So Nehemiah, he's made his trip back to Jerusalem. He spent three days. Then he goes out in the nighttime and he surveys the walls. He only has a few men with him. He hasn't told everybody else what's going on yet. After he finishes this process, we see in verse 17, now he's ready to speak to the group. Now he's ready to assemble the, the workforce, if you will. He said, then said I unto them, ye see the distress that we are in. He, he appeals to what they could see as well. You all see this? You see the mess? The walls are broken down? That's an easy statement to make, even as a, as a preacher, as a person today, to be able to look around and say, you see the mess our country's in. We would all agree that there's a mess. 
The problem is, what do you do about the mess? And then, are you actually going to do what should be done about the mess? That's where he's going with this. Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now he makes his appeal. He's already showed them what the problem is. Now he invites them to help with the solution. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. So he offers a solution and he invites them to come be part of it. But he doesn't stop there. Here's the thing. We can all argue about our different opinions about what should be done or how it should be done. And we'll probably never get anywhere if that's what we do. But that's, Nehemiah doesn't stop there and that's why I think he gets this done. Because Nehemiah doesn't just express what the problem is. He doesn't just say, here's a solution. He doesn't just invite everybody to come with him. He also points the people back to God. You see, we could look at our situation today in our world, our society, our culture, you name it. There's problems going on and say, there's problems and we would all agree. We could say, here's a solution and some people might agree. But what we must do is go back to what God has said and where God directs. That way, then, we can come together and know that what we're doing is what we should be doing. You said, how does that happen? Well, notice verse 18. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me. Nehemiah begins to tell them, here's all the things that God has done. You know, here's the problem. The walls are, bur- are broken. The gates are burned. Our city is in a great reproach. Let's build up the wall. Let's fix it. God has already been at work. I was praying back in Persia that God would provide a way. And I was working as the king's cupbearer. And God provided a way for me to be able to speak to the king. And the king gave me letters of introduction. He gave me soldiers to protect me. He gave me wood out of his forest. He gave me time off so I could come and do this. God gave me whatever I needed to be able to fulfill what needs to be done. See, Nehemiah gives the glory to God. And Nehemiah points the people back to God. We read in verse 19 of the opposition once again. We know that's still going to come because now all the people are gathering together and they're even more opposed. But in verse 20 he says, Then answered I them, he's speaking to those that would oppose them, and said unto them, The God of heaven, He will prosper us. Therefore we His servants will arise and build. I like that word. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. As Nehemiah points the people back to God, even though there is great opposition that still comes, Nehemiah is then able to say, we are going to get together, we are going to arise, and we are going to build this because God has been good and God has provided and we are going to do what God wants us to do. And if you go to chapter 3, and we won't this morning, but we'll get there next week, Lord willing, that's exactly what happened. 
the people got together and began to build the wall. I want, to, I want you to see very simply, fourthly this morning, that faithful obedience that gives glory to God will encourage others to obey as well. I mean, think about it. Nehemiah is just one guy. Why, when Nehemiah came, did now the walls start to get built? When those people had been there for all this time, Nehemiah is just one more set of hands. Why did they work when Nehemiah got there, but they didn't work before? Well, it's not because Nehemiah was really strong or he was a great brick mason. It wasn't because Nehemiah was just the greatest planner in the world. No, I believe it was because Nehemiah pointed the people back to God. His faithful obedience to God. His willingness to walk by faith. His willingness even to go before the king with a sad face, which as we talked about a few weeks ago, could have resulted in his own death. Encourage those people to say, if he has faith in God, maybe I could too. If he's willing to work for God, maybe I can too. If he's willing to stand up against the opposition, we can too. You think about it, there's three people opposing them at this point. Now we know later they go back and bring some more people with them. The opposition keeps growing as the work of God keeps growing. Guess what? That just might happen at a Rise Baptist church too. Be ready for that. As God blesses our church and as things grow, don't be surprised if the opposition grows as well. As God is always advancing... The devil's always fighting. And he doesn't always just come in and sort of crash in and crash everybody at the same time. The way opposition often works, the way Satan likes to work, he comes in little by little through this person and that person and that person. And so that's why it's so important. All of us must walk with God. The devil would love to come in and split up a, what everybody thought was a healthy marriage. Or the devil would love to come in and take some young people away that we thought were serving God. The devil would love to come in and, and bring some, some fighting and struggle among people who we thought they liked each other. Why? Because the devil always hates what God is doing. Don't let opposition deter you from obedience. You see, when Nehemiah said to the people, he said, let us Arise and build. We will arise and build. They were strengthening their hands to do what God wanted them to do. When God's people do God's work, they are standing in direct opposition to Satan who's trying to accomplish his work. Maybe we don't often face the opposition because maybe we're not standing in the right place in the fight. If you're not feeling the heat of the battle, it's probably because you're not in the battle. If you're feeling it, realize God's with you. Don't quit. Stay faithful. But you can't do it in your own strength. This is why over and over and over, Nehemiah points himself back to God. He points his people back to God. I think so, sometimes we get a little off in our Christian thinking. I'll put that in parentheses, a little 
little uh, quotation marks, Christian thinking, because we just say, well, I'm going to get so strong and so good, and I'm just going to do right, and I'm going to know what the Bible says, and I'm just going to be able to fight off everything that comes. I'm just going to be able to stand against it. No, you won't. You need the Lord. Don't ever get so strong and so tough that you don't need Jesus anymore. When you get that strong and tough, you are actually very weak. You're deceiving yourself. You need the Lord. You need to walk in His strength. And it doesn't matter whether you're 10 years old or 80 years old. You need the Lord's strength. And I think the older I get, the more I realize I need His help and His strength. Because even though I might get a little bit bigger and a little stronger and a little smarter, humanly speaking, I just realize more and more how little I am compared to the forces of evil around us and more importantly compared to the power of God that's in us. We can't do this on our own. And you can't do this on your own either. Your marriage, you're not strong enough to hold your marriage together without God. God is the glue that keeps it together. You're not strong enough to force your kids to do right and point them on the right path and they won't leave it. No, you need God. Your children need God. You're not strong enough to solve all the problems that are coming. And we try to do that, don't we? We just, I'm going to grit my teeth and I'm going to do it. And we just can't do it. We fail and we struggle and we get upset. Why are we doing this? We need the Lord's help. We need to obey His Word. And having the Lord's help is not just something, I need God's help. No, it's learning what He says and then living it with my life. And then asking Him for the strength to keep doing it. It's day by day. King David said, early will I seek thee. He got up early in the morning to spend time with God. Why? Because he needed Him every day. It's a daily thing. A relationship is not something you start once and then walk away from. That's not a real relationship. A relationship is something that's building and growing and being worked on every day. You need this relationship with God. We're going to read more about Nehemiah in the coming weeks. And Nehemiah isn't perfect. He doesn't do everything right. That's why the message this morning is not be like Nehemiah. The message this morning is learn from Nehemiah how you can look to God. Because God can help you. And He will. So as you're thinking about trusting and obeying, understand when God speaks through His Word, and He does, if you'll read it, if you'll listen to it, if you'll hear it, Be ready to go. Go in obedience. Don't wait. Understand that while you obey, there will be opposition that will come. It's just going to happen. And as you're obeying, sometimes not everybody's with you right from the start. You may be a little lonely in the process. But as you continue to obey, your obedience will encourage others. It's just how it works. I've told the story before and tell it again, but... Jonathan and his armor bearer there in 1 Samuel 17, I think it is, really encouraged me. No, 14, 14, right? As they go up against the Philistine garrison, two guys against a whole army. His dad's army, Jonathan's father's army, Saul's army, was out sitting under the trees. But Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and says, 
The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. It may be the Lord will work for us. We're not, we're not here saying, oh, we need everybody's help. No, we just need the Lord's help. And you and I need to be faithful to Him. May we trust and obey. Because as the song says, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. This passage of scripture has been such an encouragement to my heart. But while it's encouraged me, it's really challenged me as well. Lord, you know I'm as weak as anybody in here. And I tend towards comfort. And I shy away from opposition. Lord, may I be the father and the husband and the pastor that you want me to be in your strength. I need your help this morning. Lord, I pray for our church the people that make up this church. So thankful for them. So thankful for the work that you're doing in their heart. Lord, I know that we can rejoice in you and you have done so many wonderful things here. But many will go home today and there will be struggles, troubles, heartache, difficulty, all kinds of opposition. Things that would distract them, keep them just busy so they don't have time for you. Things that will keep them distracted so they're not focused on you. Things that would keep them frustrated so they struggle to have faith in you. Lord, I pray that you'd help each one of us to keep our eyes on you. To spend time in your word, to spend time in prayer. Spend time giving glory to you for what you have done. Lord, we know we're going to face struggle in this world, but I'm so thankful we don't have to be afraid because you have overcome the world. I pray that we'd walk faithfully in obedience, trusting and obeying you each day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.